Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 4, Mary Queen of Scots. Hello, so here we are again. I'm Thomas. I'm Kate. And uh, welcome back to the Gladstone's Land podcast. How are you doing today? Good, good. Yep, excited to be recording this. Yes, it's always very exciting to do another episode. Um, (laughs) What are we going to be talking about this week? So we're going to be talking about the Reformation in Edinburgh this week. Excellent. And um, later on we're going to be talking to Nicole Ridgely, who is one of our volunteers, who is going to tell us a lot about Mary Queen of Scots, which is very topical at the moment. We've got a really exciting episode lined up talking about Mary Queen of Scots. Topical because, uh, as the listeners may know, we've recently had a film come out uh, about Mary and and her relationship with Elizabeth, starring Saoirse Ronan as Mary Queen of Scots, and um, a jolly good film which we recommend to you all. But um, before we do that, let's very briefly uh, talk about the Reformation uh, in in Scotland, and particularly in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Nicole's going to talk a little bit more about the the background of the Reformation, um, but... Uh, it had a great impact on Edinburgh and was was largely played out quite a lot in um, in and around Edinburgh because um, Edinburgh was the capital of the kingdom, obviously, and um, there was a lot of lot of action nearby at St Andrews. Yes, there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, the bef- before Mary got back, before Mary Queen Scott came back to uh, to Scotland, there was a there was effectively essentially a civil war between the Protestant nobles the the lords of the congregation as they're known and the and the government led by mary's mother marie de guise uh, a french noblewoman who was the regent so the lords of the congregation were the protestants marie de guise were the catholics and they apart from anything else they fought for control of edinburgh they kept trying to have their people put on edinburgh's borough council etc um Edinburgh was the site of the Reformation Parliament. This is where Parliament met to uh, to abolish the Roman Catholic Church in in Scotland and and in pass laws to make Scotland a Protestant country. John Knox, the the important uh, spiritual leader of the Scottish Reformation, was installed as the minister of St Giles, and his um, Fire and brimstone sermons from the pulpit at St Giles were, were particularly uh, a particular feature of the Reformation. And actually, this is one of the things done really well in the film. Uh, David Tennant of Doctor Who fame plays John Knox and plays him brilliantly. Um, the and the other thing that is relevant to us in this podcast is we've talked quite a lot about the Edinburgh mob so far haven't we the the fact that edinburgh was such a tightly packed and crowded yes. space one of the, res- the results of this was that people spent a lot of time in the street um and when emotions ran high uh mobs and some political riots formed quite quickly and the edinburgh mob was responsible at various key moments in the reformation for um uh, for, for for rioting I think in 1560, they, uh, they, an Edinburgh mob disrupted a procession on St Giles' Day, as St Giles being the patron saint of Edinburgh. Um, they actually smashed the, the cathedral's icon of St Giles, and then 
another icon was borrowed from the the Grey Friars friary, uh, and uh, and the procession took place. But a mob sort of attacked the procession. Oh stole the icon and threw it in the Norloch and then there was a pitched battle. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to rescue well, it from exactly. that. And as far as I know there was a pitched battle between some mob, um, mobsters and, and friars uh, in which the uh, the, friar, the mobsters had the upper hand um, So that, and that's a particularly important event. Um, when Mary Queen of Scots came to Edinburgh a riot also tried to disrupt her first mass at Holyrood Abbey, that is a Catholic mass. Um, and so that that's something we see quite a lot uh, in, throughout the history of the Scottish Reformation. Um, for instance, the uh, to take it a little bit further down, in 1637, when Charles I tried to install the Book of Common Prayer into Scotland, uh, the people of Edinburgh rioted, uh, and that sparked off the... The, the civil war so um so edinburgh's mob being particularly rowdy and particularly um sensitive to to religious uh, changes is quite an important feature of of the reformation so so that's that really right. well, i think that um, gives us a springboard to uh leap into nicole's interview So we're here in the Gladstone's Land basement. You see, you've got me saying that now as well. And uh, we are here with Nicole, one of our volunteers at Gladstone's Land, who is going to talk to us about Mary, Queen of Scots. So can we just start with, uh, partly for my benefit, a very quick overview of the Scottish Reformation, maybe in a few sentences? I know that's a tall order. No, yeah, so 1560, the Reformation was passed. And unlike other Europe, in European countries, Scotland was quite unique because it wasn't royally led and there was kind of no royal decree um, given. So lawfully it was passed, which meant that um, the Protestant faith was now the formal religion in Scotland and the jurisdiction of the papacy and Catholicism was now supposedly no longer in place within Scotland. That wasn't quite what happened. Lawfully it passed, but I would say it took a good 80 years or so for it to be fully embedded within Scotland. So unless you were in a large town or along the central belt, Catholicism still was very much widely taking place within Scotland. Um, How did they get to that point? How did it get from being a, a Catholic country at the beginning of the century and then having a parliament pass an act establishing it as a Protestant Mm -hmm. country. So actually Mary Queen of Scots' absence played a large part in this because regents were now in place within the country. So with with regents in control, it meant that the nobles had a lot more power than they would have done if a reigning monarch had come into place. So when James V died, he'd kind of avoided as much as possible humanist ideas, um, reforming kind of notions on... um, thoughts he'd kind of put it on the back burner a little bit kind of avoided it as much as possible but when he died and mary came to reign and become in 1542 that meant that suddenly with the country now under the rule of regents they had more access they had more control and power to kind of push in um ideas um and people like john knox were able to kind of rise in the ranks um mm-hmm. and come about and so many of the leading nobles were Protestant and so they were able to 
push that agenda. Yes. In when while the mm-hmm. Queen was was mm-hmm. underage. Yeah. And then yeah, there was a very small group of they were very small, but a group of very powerful Protestants who were able to um, gain a lot of control, push along most of the reforming ideas, which would then become the Protestant party, in a sense, but also the English influence within the country and the lack of the French influence once Mary of Guise died, which was the regent, um, before Mary came back um, to Scotland. And with the French old alliance now ended and the English intervention, they were able to gain more control and therefore they were able to spread literature, ideas around much more than they had been previously. Yeah, Mary's absence, I think, played a bigger part in it than maybe it might have done. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that there's kind of like this idea, some scholarship is like overnight 100% Protestant. And I'm thinking, well, not really. People in the Highlands are not going to instantly one probably have heard of it mm-hmm. overnight but also if you, a lot of, it's all local differences in Scotland at the time played massive roles in people's lives if you are in a village and you've got someone like the Hamilton family very strong catholic family they're in and they're in control of your area that you live in you're not really necessarily going to be that bothered by what someone says in Edinburgh. You're going to be interested in what they're saying. So if they're still following Catholicism, that's what you're going to practice. So that's why lawfully it had passed, but culturally it really didn't make that much of an impact, as John Knox would probably have liked it to. <laughs> um, and then with Mary coming back as well, that kind of added a whole different event. So Mary's father, James V, had mm-hmm. died and then been a long regency mm-hmm. um, when Mary uh, was as the queen as a baby had been out of the country, country. Uh, in that time a group of Protestant nobles managed to seize control of the government and mm-hmm. pass Protestantism into force uh, as a as an act of as an act of Parliament yes. is that yes. about right no, that's okay. right Johnny good <laughs> well summarized um, you're, we're here primarily to talk about Mary Queen of Scots. Mm-hmm. Um, could you could you tell us about your interest in Mary Queen of Scots? I'm interested in female leaders, women in power. She's interesting for me in various ways, just because she had to deal with quite a lot of things for someone who was so young, and I think that's kind of what you need to remember. She was only nineteen. And yes, she had been brought up in this royal sphere, but she was also human and she was a 19-year-old. So she kind of had to deal with her own sense of what am I supposed to do, as well as deal with the whole institution of the monarchy. So she was she was away during the, mm-hmm. the while all this was going on in mm-hmm. Scotland. Where, where had she been? She got sent to France when she was six years old because she had been betrothed to Francis II. Dauphin of France um, and that's who she was going to marry so she went to France and she lived there and she from from most of the scholarship she kind of was brought in and she was treated as if she was one of the French royal family um, she was given an education but not necessarily academic as such much more courtly um, and with the Valois court being one of the most kind of renowned Renaissance courts there was in Europe at the time, she was exposed to the highest kind of calibre of Renaissance festivities, but also everything that you could possibly think of, kind of the typical Renaissance 
kind of dream. She was she was part of it. She, living the Renaissance yeah. dream. It's very fashionable. Yes. So even so she was she was intelligent. She learnt Latin and she learnt Scots, but she would have been exposed to much more of the courtly kind of embroidery, dancing, music, um, that kind of aspect of it. Um, and why did she then have to come back to Scotland? So she came back to Scotland because her husband died, Francis. So Francis' h- father died, which meant that suddenly, at the age of 18, she became queen of France alongside her husband, Francis, who was king. And But then, only a year after they married, he died. So that meant in 1560, suddenly she was a widow. And now, to the French, she kind of had no purpose anymore because the whole point of the union... They, the old alliance between France and Scotland had been going on for lo- for a long time between the two countries, so there was always kind of that connection. But now, Francis had died. So, in reality, Mary could have married his younger brother, but um, Francis's mother, Catherine, was not too keen on um, Mary. So she kind of had no choice but to go back to Scotland so she arrived in Scotland in 1561 um, Quite coincidentally I suppose she, he, he, her husband died the same year that the Reformation Parliament had passed its mm-hmm. acts Was it a total coincidence that she came back right as all this was taking place? Um, it, more coincidence than anything, she kind of had no choice but to come back because she wasn't going to be able to stay in France um, so yeah, she and arrived. How, how was it when she found it? What what did she come back to? Well, a country that was pretty much the complete opposite of France at the time, in a way. She was, I think, she's going back to a country that she doesn't really she doesn't really speak the language very well. She can write Scots, but she doesn't speak it that well. She doesn't really know much about it, and Scotland at that time was so different from the court, the life that she would have led. So first off, she had to deal with, okay, so how am I going to rule? Because even though she had been queen, she didn't have a prominent role as that such in the country. So she had to deal with politically, how am I going to ease my way into this, back into this country without causing too much turmoil for me, but also as the country as a whole? She had to deal with the fact that she was a Catholic and the country had legally converted to Protestantism. And that's always played up as the defining feature of her reign, isn't mm-hmm. it? The, the, sort of the, the, the historical myth is of this Catholic queen mm-hmm. uh, steamrolling into yes. a, uh, a devoutly now Protestant, Protestant. and revolutionary mm-hmm. country and the two of them being at loggerheads yes. and that was an irreconcilable mm-hmm. problem and that it was eventually solved by the council or the, the Scottish uh, Protestant nobles getting rid of her. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that a fair picture? No. I wouldn't <laughs> say. Um, she was actually very tolerant of the Protestant faith. She She came in and she didn't instantly say, right, Protestantism is out because I'm back and Catholicism is now backing. She did make a proclamation that stated that all the Protestant nobles who were currently in position could keep their position and that the Protestant faith could still be practised. She privately would 
practice Catholicism, but she, you know, she did not come in and demand that it be reverted back to the um, to Catholicism, which I think was a sensible choice for her, <laughs> just because, especially in a country that she didn't know that well, if she had come in and completely kind of fully gone for it, she would have had a lot more enemies much quicker, I think. It was a sensible move. She did everything almost textbook, in a way. Um, but it was her kind of personal choices that I think led to her downfall. And do we, in terms of sort of Edinburgh itself, do mm-hmm. we know how much time she spent here? Did she, was so she based she, here? She was based here, but she actually travelled a lot. She was, unlike her um, predecessors, she travelled throughout Scotland much more than anyone had really ever seen. She wanted to see her country, but she also wanted to see her people. So she travelled a lot, much more than anybody else. And so she would come back here and spend some time here, but she actually spent a lot of her personal reign, especially in the beginning, travelling, which I think is interesting because I suppose there's only so much she can hear from other people about what her own country was like, but she wanted to see it for herself. And then by the end of her um, reign, she kind of had no choice but to flee to several places because she was under attack. And so when she's in, um, when she was in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. where where would she have been living at that time? So there's sources say she's in Holyrood. And is that Holyrood Palace as we know it today, or is what we've got a more modern rebuilding? There's definitely some later extensions. Yes, there are. It's not going to be how it is now. Right, but there would have still been a a fairly decent palace yes. down there, mm-hmm. built built in the French Renaissance style. Yeah, is that right? Mm-hmm. So she spent some time there, and she also spent some time at the castle. At the right? castle, because I believe James the Sixth was born, born in born that there. tiny little room, apparently. Um, yes. And so, if nothing else, uh, we know here, here we are, desperate to try and find some connection here. She <laughs> would have, uh, on her travels between Holyrood and Edinburgh Castle, mm-hmm. she would have passed oh, by Glastonbury. She would have, and uh, no doubt, been looked at by uh, people <laughs> in the windows. So there you go. Um, well, yeah, because she did do an entry round Edinburgh soon after she arrived. They made an. Uh, it's quite a standard practice they make an official entry into Edinburgh so that's what she would have done and that was really well received she she there, there's kind of differences in scholarship and um people's ideas but she was received quite well um from like the general public as such because she was kind of this very grand and opulent queen that was arriving back to her country um, and they hadn't hadn't really seen kind of that level of um festivities before and I think that's something that she brought back to Scotland when she came. So if she was popular with the people, mm-hmm. with the people of Edinburgh and she was also conciliatory with the nobles, mm-hmm. what happened? Why did she why did she how did she get from this position um, of strength at the beginning Mm -hmm. of her reign to being deposed only five years later i think she was going back to she was she was tolerant with the nobles that doesn't necessarily that they were tolerant of her um the whole way through she made some bad decisions in terms of husbands which did not help her in the slightest 
in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, her marriage to Darnley was the start, I think, of her downfall in a way because it was just a bad choice all in, round. In what way? Why, or, why, or rather, why was it a bad political choice? Why was her choice of husband relevant to her political position? Well, in the beginning, Mary wanted the English succession, and that's what she was kind of... She was kind of appeasing Elizabeth the whole way through, kind of her early period. That's what she was like, if Elizabeth will like it, let's just keep kind of doing it, because she really wanted England. And so Darnley, marrying Darnley, Darnley had... He was an heir to the English and the Scottish throne. So by her marrying him, they are now a kind of a power couple and they both have a right to the English and the Scottish throne. So although Darnley was English-born, he also was a Catholic. And so people did not like that either. Um, And that was a big part of that. supposed to be a rather handsome man, though, wasn't he? He was. And Mary was was quite besotted with him. (laughs) Um, To the disgust of many of her own nobles. They were very anti-Darnley because of his own kind of um, right to the throne in itself. It always seems, again, going back to the the historical myth about Mary, we always seem to get bogged down in discussions of of husbands mm-hmm. and men, and how was this or that husband a mm-hmm. good choice? And invariably, well, at the time and by historians, she's been held to a totally different standard to contemporary male rulers, mm-hmm. right? She, Because she had a couple of unfortunate marriages, she is was thought of in a very negative light for being mm-hmm. uh, sexually voracious and all these things, whereas someone like Henry VIII, for instance... Um, was notoriously bad at at marriages, but is still thought of in some ways as a great ruler. Mm-hmm. Why why do we why are we so or why why has history been so obsessed with Mary's marriages? I think first off, when Mary came back to Scotland, she didn't have to just kind of prove herself as a queen, but she also had to prove herself as a female ruler. There were still a significant. John Knox being a key one who did not believe <laughs> that a female should be on the throne. What is the wonderful phrase that um, he uses? Yes. His, um, his first... Hordes uh, of the, um, something w- women. When he, uh, when he was in exile in Geneva, he wrote uh, his, his most famous um, uh, book or, or most famous document, uh, The First Blast of the Trumpet yes. Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a polemic against... Mary Tudor and Mary Queen of Scots, mm-hmm. I believe, um, that uh, you know, female Catholics should not be queens. Yeah. In other words, so I think that's something that she really had to figure out how she was going to do it, and also how, but how she was going to do it in a way that wasn't going to cause her own position to be weakened more than it already was, because she still needed to rule, but she had to figure out how she was going to do that and prove to everyone that she could. Right from the beginning, as soon as she came back to Scotland, she was pressured into saying, who are you going to marry? Everyone believed that's what she had to do. She had to get married. She had to have a husband. And so she did get married. But I think that was also her just proving that she could rule and that the fact that she chose Darnley on her own accord Mm -hmm. was another way. There's this kind of idea, and some scholars have written it, that up until her marriage to Darnley, she had kind of appeased everyone. She'd kind of done what she was supposed to do. 
but it was Darnley that she kind of put her foot down and said, you know what, this is what I want to do, and so this is what we're going to do. Um, which I think, to a point, yes, because she was quite besotted with Darnley, and he really was not a good choice overall. But she believed, and the fact that she named him King, which is a really bad mm-hmm. choice for her, and really did not go down well. And so she made this uh, poor choice of husband, mm-hmm. and that united the powerful nobles at court against her and started the process leading to her deposition, basically. Yes, because after Darnley, then there was the murder of her private secretary, which Darnley was supposedly have um, signed the document and agreed that the murder of him him was going to take place. And her... For kind of forgiving all the rest of the nobles and kind of going about it as if kind of nothing happened. Um, that's where she also made some bad choices. She just forgave people and forgave people when really, if she had knuckled down, then Dali, Dali should have been punished much more than he was. But he wasn't. And then he died and she married the person who supposedly was the reason why her first, her second husband died. Boswell. So she she didn't help herself in too many cases, but um, I think it was a tricky situation because she had to prove herself in her own right, but she also had to keep the institution of the monarchy intact as well. So it's kind of like that battle of how am I personally going to do something and how am I going to keep this kind of legacy in place? Um, and I think... Again, as a 19-year-old, that's quite a tricky task in a country that is kind of alien to you and you're kind of figuring it out as you go along as well. Well, this is probably a good opportunity to segue into talking about the the film um, we, talking about Mary Queen of Scots is quite topical at the moment because in the last few weeks as you probably know uh, the, this uh, new film has come out uh, uh, entitled Mary Queen of Scots and telling the story of Mary and her relationship with Elizabeth I of England um, so uh, Nicole I believe you've got some opinions about the MQS <laughs> film Yes, I do. Overall, I thought it wasn't too bad. In the general <laughs> in general terms, for a Hollywood movie focusing on the historical point of time, especially a figure like Mary Queen of Scots, it wasn't too bad. There were certain aspects which frustrated me. Okay, like what? First off, Scottish accent just annoyed me. She, Mary Queen of Scots in the movie has quite a well. I thought a she Scottish had an accent. Irish accent in the film. Which annoyed me in the sense that she wouldn't have had one because she was brought up pretty much to be a French woman in a sense, mm-hmm. and so yes, yeah, she was surrounded by a select few of Scottish people in France, but not enough, I don't think, to have. Yeah, uh, she does speak French. She does speak film, French. And her first line is in French, yes, isn't it? It is, which is quite symbolic. Yeah, she, she says, um, "So, well, I'm not going to do it in French." But she <laughs> says, <laughs> uh, 
your 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 queen was in France, France and now, but I am in Scotland now. And yeah, she says the second half in, in, Scot- in, in, in English. Yeah. Yes, although it should have been in Scots, yes. obviously. Anyway, enough of that. So okay, Scottish accent. Yeah. What else? The other, when she arrives, she's in the sea. Is she kind of is in the sea, isn't she? But then her clothing is like impeccable. It's beautiful. And why is she in the sea? Oh, she comes. She she arrives. They in just, like a little dinghy boat kind of thing. They get don't they, almost? Yes. It looks like they just get washed ashore. But they, in practice, she, she came ashore at Leith to great fanfare. Yes, like there was so that also annoyed me. Because I thought, where are where is everybody? Because <laughs> she's supposed to, not necessarily instantly, but it kind of got round town quite quickly that the Queen has now arrived. So there were lots of people around, yet there was no one around in the movie. She kind of arrived, didn't she, in a little dinghy boat... And she was like, "Oh, I'm I'm home." And I thought, mm, "I'm not quite sure that's how it would have gone down." But <laughs> and no salt stains uh, in her dress. No. I suppose there was also the obvious complaint that it showed that much of Scotland. The film showed that much of Scotland, including the land around Edinburgh, well, um, all looked yes. like Glencoe. Yeah. Uh, that was irritating. But I think that's that's the sort of thing that. I'm prepared to forgive yes. in a film because you know if you want to do a Hollywood movie set in Scotland, then it's got to look like that. Fine. Yes. Um, moving on to talking about the Hollywood Palace, though, for instance, mm-hmm. we, which we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. on, she spends a lot of time and, uh, in Hollywood Palace, mm-hmm. but it look, basically looks like she's in a stone and, ruin. Yes, and and it's all it, it could be set in in eleven hundred, not fifteen sixty. Um, okay, so there's a few historical uh-huh. inaccuracies in terms of details. Yeah, what I did think was quite good was they did show her court quite well. In oh, ter- really? Yeah, in terms of um, the scene where there's like the dancing dogs and it's mm-hmm. very dramatic and there's lots of theatre and music and dancing. Okay. Because there is this kind of idea that with Mary returning to Scotland, so did the idea of courtly culture arrive back. Because she was known for her big festivities, James VI, baptism being a huge one. Scotland had never really seen anything on that scale before. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also knew the political importance of um, events such as that. There was a real difference between Elizabeth sitting around and then Mary always had music and constant... What about her relationship? With, with Elizabeth, because I think that's something that has been flagged by by a number of scholars in the area. Yeah, so how do you feel about that? I thought Mary was Mary. I think Mary did really want to get on with Elizabeth. She really wanted Elizabeth to like her as well, and I think that did show in the movie. She was quite um, concerned all the time: is Elizabeth liking this or that kind of aspect? And seeing as they net they in reality they did not meet at all when they showed the portraits of not that we know about yes well the portraits of each other were presented to one another they were both very keen to see is that what they look like do they really look look like that or is this kind of you know an artist's impression of what they did but the only thing that annoyed me then between the relationship between when they did meet in the movie right at the end Elizabeth was it was quite vulnerable and she was kind of you know you got married and you had a 
child and that kind of aspect. Whereas I think if they had met, Elizabeth wouldn't have really been that vulnerable towards her. Mm, Elizabeth held all the cards. Yes. Was the powerful one. Uh -huh. yeah. Maybe on a human level, yes, but she wouldn't have necessarily shown it, I don't think. Elizabeth wasn't going to back down for anybody. I think one of the reasons that they, they did that, that they, they tried to make Elizabeth look vulnerable, is that they were sort of saying that in Mary and Elizabeth you had effectively two very different models of a Renaissance queen. Yes. You had Mary who tried to... who, who, who got married and had children Conformed and tried to, to, to conform. Mm -hmm. Whereas you had Elizabeth who didn't do all those things, who effectively tried to rule as a man, mm -hmm. and that... And succeeded, if we're entirely and, honest. Yes, and because absolutely. she's the one that's, you know, yeah, retained so, this power. So, so, and that's sort of the point that you sort of noticed from the film was that we think of Elizabeth as having succeeded, mm -hmm. um, but actually, in terms of her own personal life, um, she, she didn't, uh, in, in the sense that... And, the, the the film showed Elizabeth very d sad that she hadn't had uh, any children, for instance, and we don't I, we've no way of knowing how true that is. Mm -hmm. But it, it was sort of saying that neither of them could really win. That mm -hmm. Mary Mary conformed and married and had children and so on, and that was the cause of her political downfall. But then, in order, and so the contrast is Elizabeth. Uh, in order to win in a political sense, she essentially had to forfeit her family life. Mm -hmm. No, I, I do agree with that. Um, yeah, Elizabeth made a choice very early on that I am going to succeed, and in order to succeed, this is what I'm going to have to sacrifice. Whereas I think Mary kind of wanted a bit of both. She wanted to succeed, but she also wanted to conform and get married. So we've we've... Had, we've discussed a couple of the specific historical inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. My general rule with historical film mm -hmm. drama is that I can forgive small things and changes of mm -hmm. setting or massaging the, the the narrative in order to build it into a better story. Story, mm -hmm. and if, I guess the, if it feels right, yeah, you, you, you my, really want historical films to feel right. My 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 good example. Oh, that I always go back to, particularly with these relevant for this, is is the Tudors mm -hmm. actually. Which although <laughs> although they do massage the story and they combine <laughs> and go a little bit rogue with some of their costume choices, yeah, <laughs> and they they combine a couple of Henry the Eighth sisters into one character. It's all it, it it's they do that in order to prevent to present the story in a little more straightforward fashion. But the reason, but what they do well is presenting the. A the characters and B the general plot arc of Henry's Henry VIII's life as is bang on mm -hmm. you know Henry VIII but also Cardinal Wolsey Thomas Moore Thomas Cromwell Thomas Cramner the the the, the queens and and various people they're all pretty reputable well done characters so with the the, the contrast to that uh, in talking about Mary Queen of Scots is is the 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 series Rain, uh, which is, <laughs> which is, which is about. <laughs> I mean, it's fine if you don't want history. If you don't want history at all, historical accuracy in mm. any way. So, so the, our, our question here really is: in terms of this this film, in your your opinion, with your knowledge about Mary Queen of Scots and the period, <laughs> where is it on that spectrum? <laughs> how, yeah, how did they get 
the characters and the feel of the the court and personally i i don't think they did a bad job especially in terms of the whole court aspect and mary i think they did kind of um kind of emphasize the courtly culture that was there i think they did show well how Mary was quite besotted with Darnley and how that very quickly changed. I thought that I quite liked Darnley in the movie. I thought he was he did quite the only thing that annoyed me slightly, which is quite a small minor detail, was he was quite keen he kept saying to her, I'm going to be king, I'm going to be king and she agreed when in reality she um announced it first. That was the only other thing in the movie that kind of I was sitting there kind of getting a little bit frustrated because she was kind of letting him decide that he would be king and she was like, yes, yes, you will be king. But actually, she was the one who, um, yes, he wanted crown matrimony and he wa- he did, he wanted the title, he did and, he, and she soon learnt that. But she also was the one who declared it the day before they married. They also the film did some quite interesting things with Darnley, didn't it? Yes. Because in the in the um, in the film he is is gay. Yes. And he and he is David Rizzio's lover as yes. opposed to Mary. Mary, mm-hmm. which is a, which. Yes, I wasn't sure about that. I mean, it it certainly worked in the context mm-hmm. of the of the film, and it was one explanation for the breakdown of her relationship with with Darnley. Darnley, yes. Um, did, is, is there any historical precedent for that, or have you read that in any I, other account? I haven't read that. So that bit, I was kind of sitting there thinking, okay, this is how you're going to play this. Um, I haven't be- read anything. I might have missed something, but I haven't really read that. More Mary... That's why Darnley wanted to kill Rizzio because was she was Mary's, Mary's lover, lover. Um, rather than the other way around. But yeah, there was no kind of real love affair between Mary and Rizzio in the movie. It was more kind of like, you're my brother mm-hmm. and you're my sister. But I quite liked Darnley in the movie. I thought mm. he played him quite well. Arrogant, self-obsessed, drunk, um, didn't really care that too much about Mary after they married. But so, that was my opinion. No, I, I agree. I agree. It was good. Um, so, so our overall assessment is it's pre- pretty good. It's not too for a, for a Hollywood movie, and you have to kind of attract more than the average kind of historian. I think <laughs> they they didn't do too badly. Well, there you go. That's a a, a pretty positive yes. assessment, <laughs> I, I would say. So now, well, it gets, it, one last question about Mary. Um, mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about before about the the myth, the myth of Mary, and that um, throughout history she's either been portrayed as a voracious villain and sexual mm-hmm. deviant, or a tragic Catholic martyr. Mm-hmm. And modern historiography might add to that as a hopeless failure. Yes. That neither of those two things, but she was just not mm-hmm. very good at being a queen. Where where do you stand on Mary? I think it's a little bit of. I think she could have been a really good queen. The people around her 
didn't make it easy for her and I think because she wanted to kind of keep the peace she agreed to things that actually she shouldn't have agreed to um I don't think she was a complete failure um nor do I think she she should be held up as a complete martyr but in the first few years I think she did a good job but then when personal feelings took over and she decided to kind of I think make decisions more not for her heart and not necessarily her head and she didn't really think about long term what could this do for me I think that's where she went wrong so she, I but I think she could have been a I think she could have been a really good queen yeah there you have it folks <laughs> misunderstood and finally um the the most important question <laughs> of the interview as you know we've been we've been asking our guests to choose two or three historical figures or, or contemporary figures that they would like to invite to a, uh, a, a fictional dinner party and you've done a little bit of thinking about mm-hmm. this who are you going to bring to um, your so, who are you going to invite to, to the Gladstone's Land dinner party so obviously I will invite Mary Queen of Scots <laughs> to pick her brain fair, fair. Um, I'm also picking Isabella d'Este um, Renaissance renowned Italian Renaissance leader um who used her position and um, mater- and used material culture again? Isabella Deste used her um, portrait medals to create her identity, express it, display it, project it, um, which I think is interesting. Again, that they felt the need that they had to kind of portray in a men's world. So you had Mary Queen of Scots, Isabel Adeste and your third is... Barack Obama. Ah. The classic Barack Obama. Perfect. Just because I think he's a lovely human being. And <laughs> I think he'd be interesting in, in contrast to the female. Mm. Also it's interesting sort of mix of people in power who've had power. Yes. They have some interesting things to talk about mm-hmm. I think. Yes, I think um, I'm sure Barack could, could charm anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, uh, this has really been a, a, a brilliant discussion. Um, thank you very much for, thank you. for coming on no, to talk about my Scots. Well, um, that was a that, that was a fascinating fascinating discussion. I uh, it's always great to talk to someone who. Who really knows and 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 appreciates a a, a period or a, a historical figure? Absolutely. So great, great, um, great to have had that. Um, what's next? Your emails now. This is uh, the section where we we try and respond to to emails that people have written in. And uh, this week we're going to read an email from uh, Jerry from Melrose, a listener Jerry, who who asks, um, "Are there any events at Gladstone's Land that I can come along to?" <laughs> well, yes, very much so. So we actually have an event space on the third floor of the property, and we try and put things in there that uh, we, we rent it out, but we also use it for our own in-house events. So we have all sorts of things going on. We have we run a lecture series, um, which is the first Thursday of every month, um, and we have a range of academic speakers coming along but um, they, the lectures are very much pitched at a populist audience so we've got a whole range of things um, a lot of them have a historical background but they're all listed on our website um, we also um, we 
do events for special uh, sort of special occasions so we've got an easter treasure trail um mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. egg hunt uh, planned uh, we actually have um reenactors in at some points um so we've got all sorts of things that are ongoing in the property um, which are a great way to bring history alive the lecture series is that open to the public it absolutely yeah. is yes and um, what sort of, we what sort of topics have we had so far so so far we have had um ship naming practices in the medieval period uh, we've had the history of school uniform um we've looked at oh what was the one we've had recently Is it public hangings um so that yeah that one uh sort of the public execution crowd so yeah all sorts of interesting and uh, so jerry if you if if Jerry or other listeners want to come along to that where can they find out uh, about so all of the information is on the Gladstone's Land website um, and we update it regularly Good. so there you are um, lots more going on than just the tours and the shop yeah so very much so and uh, well so what's next what's the next episode well uh Next, next up, we've got uh, we've got another uh, um, member of staff actually, Ma- mm-hmm. Martin, yep. who's coming in to do with us Edinburgh greats, or rather uh, infamous greats. <laughs> yeah, greats um, is perhaps the uh, the rug. <laughs> we um, he uh, Martin also does a walking tour um, around Edinburgh, and uh, one of the things, one of the most popular things to talk about on on Edinburgh historical tours are some of the infamous figures who. Um, who, who who lived in the town in the past? So people like Deacon Brodie, Half Hanged Maggie, Burke and Hare, and so on. So next week or next time, I should say, we're having a <laughs> here we go. We're having a real um, a real expert in in some of those the local uh, characters. local characters, and so I'm really looking forward to that episode. Um, and so that's, that's that takes us to the end of the podcast this week. All we've got time for. So it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me. You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Kate Stevenson, and my co-host, Thomas Ware. It was produced by Thomas with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Nicole Ridgely, one of our volunteers. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstonesland. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.